There is no honorable way to kill, no gentle way to destroy. There is nothing good in war, except its ending. These are the words of American President Abraham Lincoln, who presided over the single most devastating war in American history, the United States Civil War. In a previous episode, we addressed how terrestrial governments dealt with the threat of nuclear weapons during the Cold War, decades ago. But sadly, the recent war in Ukraine has brought the threat of nuclear war back into the global consciousness. Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, has engaged in disturbing nuclear saber-rattling since his nation invaded the Ukraine. In a bellicose speech in the autumn of 2022, Putin declared that it was the United States that had set a dangerous precedent using nuclear weapons in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan during World War II. While Western leaders have been more cautious about their language, they have not ruled out the use of nuclear weapons or nuclear retaliation. American President Joe Biden bluntly stated recently that this is the closest we have come to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Today, the United States is the world's sole superpower, but other nations like China are ascendant and catching up fast. While the United States and Russia have been sending human beings into outer space for years, China has made enormous strides in advancing their own space program. Will space become a new theater of war in the 21st century? Or will the space powers of the world manage to avoid, as Carl Sagan called it, the joint traps set by our technology and our passions? In one of our past After Talks, we spoke with space exploration evangelist Dr. Robert Zubrin. At one point, our discussion turned to history and politics. Dr. Zubrin said he believed a philosophy which he dubbed anti-humanism was to blame for the greatest conflicts of the past century. I believe that anti-humanism is not merely a threat to the space program, it's a threat to our civilization. Um, it is the main threat to our civilization. Um, that is, if you look at the great catastrophes of the 20th century, um, they were not caused by resource exhaustion, environmental pollution, global warming, or asteroid impacts, or pandemics. They were caused by bad ideas. And in particular, one bad idea in a number of different uh, costumes. And that bad idea is that there isn't enough to go around. And if there isn't enough to go around, then all nations are fundamentally enemies. Uh, and we have to fight it out to see who's going to get what little there is. And this idea, in various forms, is the underlying cause of uh, World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, the Holodomor, and any other number of uh, horrific episodes of the last century. And and it is what threatens us in the coming century. And here we are. I mean, look, I, I can tell you for a fact, because I've spoken to them, that there are people in our national security establishment in Washington, D.C., who believe that war with China is inevitable. Why? Well, because there's only so much oil in the world. And if the Chinese develop and become a fully developed country, comparable to the U.S. or even Europe, so that most people have cars, there won't be enough oil in the world. Okay. And 
you could bet your bottom dollar that there are people exactly like them looking at this thing from the opposite side of the chessboard in Beijing and thinking exactly the same thing from their point of view. And if, if this sort of thinking is allowed to prevail, there will be wars and they will be far more destructive than the wars of the 20th century because our weaponry is far more effective. And this is the threat to civilization. Yet Dr. Robert Zubrin is no pessimist. He believes that renewed investments in the exploration of outer space can build an abundant, productive, and peaceful life for all human beings on the Earth. There will be vital roles to play for scientists, engineers, government, private businesses, and the military as well. But all new frontiers humans explore invite competition from national adversaries and economic rivals. They present new challenges and new dangers, which human beings must learn to protect themselves from. The opening vistas of space will certainly bear a great deal in common with the frontiers of the past. Science fiction is filled with glorious visions of humanity's technologically advanced future in space, as well as armed guardians ready to fight and protect that future. From science fiction author Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers to James Cameron's Colonial Marines in the film Aliens. But will such a vision always remain in science fiction? Or could it all imminently become science fact? Today, there is at least one retired U.S. Air Force leader who believes the latter to be true. He says that outer space will be the ultimate high ground, politically, economically, and militarily. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. While this podcast usually covers historical events in science and space exploration, today we will be taking a look at contemporary events and turning our gaze towards humanity's future in outer space. More specifically, the future of the American military's space force. The second largest planet in the solar system, Saturn, has majestic rings of rock and ice. But in the past few decades, human beings have created a faint ring around our own planet of well over 2,000 artificial satellites in low Earth orbit. Used for a variety of different purposes, these satellites are crucial for modern life in the developed world. Much further above the planet, we have satellites for our Global Positioning System, or GPS. These satellites orbit over 16,000 kilometers, or about 10,000 miles above the surface of the Earth. In late 2022, as the war in Ukraine dragged on, the deputy director in Russia's foreign ministry, Konstantin Vorontsov, warned in a UN assembly that orbiting Western satellites that were used explicitly for military purposes in the war in Ukraine could become Russian military targets. The United States... Russia, and China have all demonstrated the technological capability of shooting down satellites. Luckily, these demonstrations were simply military tests. As of right now, none of these nations have ever shot down another nation's satellite in anger. If the United States were to lose our own system of satellites, the results could be catastrophic. In the words of U.S. Congressman Jim Cooper, Our nation could be rendered deaf, dumb, and blind in an instant. For all the wars the United States military has been involved in, in multiple nations around the world in the past few decades, none of the enemies we fought against in combat possessed our space technology. 
But in the 21st century, China, a clear American rival, has built up extensive space infrastructure. While a variety of different nations around the world had launched satellites in the 20th century, only two ever independently launched human beings into space, Russia and the United States. In the year 2003, with the start of the new millennium, all that changed when a Chinese spacecraft carrying a single occupant orbited the Earth 14 times. He was the first Taikonaut, derived from the Mandarin word Taikong, meaning space. By the year 2012, the Chinese established a prototype space station, a small laboratory that hosted three Taikonauts in Earth orbit, including China's first female space traveler. The following year, in 2013, they launched a spacecraft with a robotic manipulator arm that could potentially be used to snatch other satellites. That same year, China became the third nation in history to land a robotic spacecraft on the Earth's moon. It was equipped with a mechanical rover that explored one of the craters nearby. By 2016, China was launching the same number of rockets into space as the United States. Despite the fact that China's space program moved at an astounding pace in the 21st century, all of its accomplishments were merely duplicating what the United States and Russia had done decades ago. But that too would change in the year 2019. In 2019, for the first time ever in human history, a robotic probe landed on the far side of the moon. There had been photos of the far side of the moon taken from lunar orbit, but no human or robot had ever landed in this remote place. China did it first. China continues to press on. In the spring of 2021, they became the second nation in history to successfully land a rover on the surface of Mars. They have plans to land astronauts on the moon by the 2030s. Shortly thereafter, they have plans to construct a permanent lunar base. In China's Gobi Desert today, Taikonauts train at a simulated Mars base. In preparation, they hope to land the first human beings on Mars someday. In our After Talk, which we will release after this episode, I interviewed Professor Brent Zarnick, the Assistant Professor of Space Power at the U.S. Air Force Command and Staff College. His knowledge proved instrumental in understanding the prospects for both America's future in space as well as China's. Political and cultural divisions in the United States mean that setting long-term, bipartisan goals can be a chaotic process. China's one-party autocratic system makes it much easier to make decisive long-term commitments. The Chinese Communist Party controls all executive, legislative, judicial, and military functions in the Chinese government. If we are in a new space race with China, the United States of America might be ahead for the moment, but Professor Zarnick warns that China is catching up very fast. We have to, from a military, from a grand strategy standpoint, we should take China at their word. Uh, and the military, the DOD, likes to talk about asymmetric strategies and asymmetric threats and you know asymmetric advantages. Well, the United States' asymmetric advantage is undoubtedly space because we're better than anyone else on the planet by far. Now, 
we're not doing quite as well as China because China is actually motivated. The United States is not as motivated. Uh, Elon Musk is. Jeff Bezos is. Certain people in the government would like us to become more motivated. But really, uh, the potential that the American people have in space is untapped. At best, in the short term, American satellites might one day be in danger, unable to defend themselves in the event of a war with China. At worst, the United States may struggle severely economically in the coming century as an ascendant China reaps the rewards of their investments in space infrastructure, exploiting a wealth of resources on both the moon and worlds elsewhere. The vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said this about China recently. Quote, They're building capabilities to use space against us. We have to be able to respond to that. The U.S. military had considered plans for a branch of the armed forces focusing on outer space two decades ago during the George W. Bush administration. But the 9-11 attacks, along with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, put such plans on hold. It was hardly a step forward. In fact, it might have been a step backwards. In 2005, U.S. Space Command was dissolved to free up more military resources for wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2018, a very different presidential administration was in power. And for all of its flaws, the administration took a strong interest in the roles of both NASA and the U.S. military in outer space. It was that year that President Donald Trump announced that he was seeking to establish a space force in the military as its own separate branch. Many political critics of that administration responded with jokes, mocking, and derision. But Professor Zarnick explained to me that the idea for a space force did not even originate in the Trump administration. Did it come out of nowhere with President Trump? Not really, because um, the people that really did start the Air Force Space Corps, this was in 2017, that drive, was a congressman, Mike Rogers, uh, in, uh, here in Alabama, and Jim Cooper in Tennessee. Uh, one was a Republican, one's a Democrat. Um, and they got very far, and the Department of the Air Force tried to stop them, and did. Uh, you know, the Senate uh, blocked it. Um, and, you know, those of us that were sort of in, uh, you know, supporters of the Space Force thought, well, you know, it was close. We tried. We got a lot of good stuff. We'll start consolidating. And that's when President Trump said, you know, maybe the Space Force thing is the right idea. Um, so uh, the problem is, though, why is it the butt of jokes and everything else? It's like, well, because the Air Force as soon as the president started saying Space Force, told everyone in the Department of the Air Force to shut up about it and would not let anyone talk about it because the Air Force wasn't interested in having, you know, its space people taken away from it. It was a decision in the office of the uh, Department of the Air Force where it's just like, no, we're going to resist this. And yet, polls conducted by the Air Force Times showed that the majority of Air Force officers favored a branch of the military that focused on space, though many in top positions of leadership opposed it. When the Air Force's gag order, as it is sometimes known, went into place, many in the Air Force opted to remain quiet. Secretary James Mattis at the time voiced strong opposition to the creation of a space force. But in the summer of 2019, U.S. Space Command was reestablished. At the end of that same year, in another decision shifting military resources towards space infrastructure, the newest branch of the armed forces 
dubbed the U.S. Space Force, or USSF, was created with an act of the U.S. Congress. It was the first time that a new military service had been created since the formation of the U.S. Air Force in 1947. While the Space Force technically operates as part of the Department of the Air Force, it is very much its own branch, much like the Marine Corps is its own branch, but technically operates under the Department of the Navy. Today, there is bipartisan consensus for the Space Force, and the Biden administration has stated that they support it. Even so, many leaders are divided about what top priorities this new branch should focus on. Retired Lieutenant General Bruce Wright believes that protecting American satellites and preserving the advantages that they grant to the United States and its military will be crucial. He believes that the Air Force and the Space Force should work close beside one another in tandem, with this as their primary goal. Currently, the U.S., Russia, and China have demonstrated the ability to destroy satellites in low Earth orbit. The question remains, though, how could a nation protect satellites from getting shot down? Dr. Robert Zubrin's latest book, The Case for Space, offers an answer to this question. He uses World War II as an analogy, a time when using aircraft in combat was still relatively new. He points out that air power theorists at the time mistakenly believed that large bomber aircraft were all that was needed for air power superiority. Yet bombers alone could not maintain air superiority in World War II. They needed something else, long-range fighter aircraft. Dr. Zubrin advocates for the creation of small, unmanned fighter satellites. While fighter jets in the skies of Earth require wings and aerodynamic designs, fighter satellites would have no such requirements in outer space. In the event that anti-satellite missiles were launched at American satellites in Earth orbit, nearby fighter satellites could leap into action and defend them. It might take at least a few minutes before the enemy missiles would cross into outer space to intersect the orbit of American satellites. The fighter satellite would be small, with an impulsive propulsion system allowing it to dart up, down, forward, and backward. Once the missile drew nearer, the fighter satellite could launch tiny rockets or even crude projectiles like metallic rods. Traveling at thousands of miles per hour in outer space, even a small impact might be more than enough to nudge a missile off its course. Dr. Zubrin says that because some of these fighters could be destroyed, it would be vital to have the ability to launch a new fleet into orbit if reinforcements were needed. It sounds like science fiction, but the technology to build fighter satellites already exists. In a piece that Professor Brent Zarnick wrote for the publication The Hill, he stated that Lieutenant General Bruce Wright's vision of a space force that defends satellites is just one of two competing visions for the future of America's military in space. The other vision comes from retired Air Force Lieutenant General Stephen Quast, he was the winner of the Defense Superior Service Medal. For much of his military career, he was a fighter pilot, logging hundreds of combat hours. But he is also an intellectual, with a bachelor's degree in astronautical engineering and a master's degree in public policy. Lieutenant General Quast's vision for Space Force is much, much more expansive. He recently said, quote, "America has become complacent." and mistakes its rapidly dissipating economic and military advantages as rights. The United States is making the same mistake that other fallen great powers have made. 
Namely, we are discounting other rising powers that are taking new approaches. Lieutenant General Quast's brazen, outspoken attitude regarding the future of America's role in outer space was not advantageous to his Air Force career. In fact, it came at a great cost. Professor Brent Zarnick tells us that Lieutenant General Quast is the senior-most officer to speak openly about what the top priorities should be for the Space Force. And protecting satellites is only one modest objective. The United States had plans to land NASA astronauts on the moon in 2024. But with so many domestic challenges in the nation today, and a new administration with other priorities, it is becoming increasingly less likely that the 2024 deadline will be met. China's plan for their robotic exploration of the Earth's moon included four separate phases. First, sending lunar orbiting probes to the moon. Second, sending robotic probes to land on the moon. Third, a lunar sample return mission. And finally, the last phase, robotic surface exploration and the investigation of in-situ resource utilization. In-situ resources are the indigenous resources that exist on the moon itself. As of right now, China has accomplished three out of the four phases of their plan. And while the fourth phase of exploration will be the most ambitious and the most complex, it will culminate with the landing of Taikonauts on the moon. China is moving forward at an astounding pace. Their current plan is to use robotic probes to explore craters at the moon's south pole. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that in the permanent shadow of these craters, there is frozen water. While drinking water would be necessary for a human colony on the moon, it also has another value. Electricity can be used to split apart the oxygen and the hydrogen in the water, making rocket fuel for a trip back to Earth, or perhaps a trip to somewhere else. And there is another resource on the moon, helium-3. It might one day be the most valuable form of fuel in the solar system. Apollo 17 astronaut Dr. Harrison Jack Schmidt, the only scientist to have set foot on the moon, says this is one of the main reasons astronauts should return to the moon. For decades now, nuclear physicists have been experimenting with nuclear fusion. While nuclear fission reactors have existed for some time, nuclear fusion reactors are very different. They are far more efficient, creating massive amounts of energy with no pollution and no nuclear waste. Nuclear fusion is what powers our sun. Inside the sun, the heat is so intense, atoms are stripped to pieces. Under lower temperatures on Earth, positively charged atomic nuclei repel one another. But under extreme heat and pressure, positively charged nuclei fuse together. Costly laboratory experiments have actually created nuclear fusion. But such experiments always use more energy than they produce hardly efficient. Physicists found substituting a rare form of helium for tritium in a nuclear fusion reactor was a game-changer, resulting in a reactor that was infinitely safer and more efficient. Helium-3 releases far, far more energy. It could make fossil fuels and nuclear fission reactors obsolete. Unfortunately on Earth, helium-3 is incredibly rare. In contrast, in lunar soil on the moon, helium-3 is abundant. The solar wind, a stream of electrically charged particles, has been shooting out of the sun 
for billions of years. While Earth is shielded by our atmosphere and our magnetic field, on the Moon, these charged particles bombard the soil on the lunar surface constantly. With a proper fusion reactor, a few hundred pounds of helium-3 could supply power to a major American city for an entire year. To be sure, mining helium-3 on the Moon, as well as building a nuclear fusion reactor on Earth to convert that helium-3 into energy, would cost billions of dollars. But within this century, it is almost certain that some nation, or perhaps some private company, will attempt to mine helium-3. So what does all of this have to do with the U.S. military? Lieutenant General Quast recently said, quote, This is not a military race. This is an economic race. And if you do not have a guardian force to bring the rule of law and predictability, no venture capitalist will know how to make risk decisions. Once you get the ultimate high ground, it's curtains for anyone trying to get there behind you. While space-based weapon systems might very well become a reality in this century, Professor Zarnik says the main reason the United States should take a leading role in space is not military, but economic. And developing space-based resources might very well serve to reduce political and military tensions here on Earth. Economic growth through space is going to be the driver of great power competition in the future. And, you know, if the United States has abundant cheap power from space and abundant uh, mineral resources from the asteroids in the moon, you know, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea will not be as dangerous as people tend to think it is for either the United States or for American allies that may feel threatened. Space is not a warfighting domain where we have to focus on beating China. We have to focus on outcompeting China. And there is a military component to that, although maybe not a warfighting one, if we play our cards right. The human race may indeed have a bright future in outer space, but we need to invest in that future now. In 1962, President Kennedy said that the exploration of outer space would move forward whether we joined in it or not. Today, if we heed Lieutenant General Quast's visionary advice, then the current century could be filled with peace and prosperity, not only for the United States, but for the many other nations that share in the adventure, for our allies and for our rivals. It seems entirely appropriate today to conclude our program with the optimistic advice that Dr. Robert Zubrin offered to me on a Universe University podcast during one of our after-talks. It's a question of refuting this conceit that there's only so much to go around by making it clear to people that it's not true that there's only so much to go around because the earth comes with an infinite sky and it's wide open. 